Welcome to Pitcast, a podcast brought to you by the Pitting Society and powered by Pragma Lawyers. Today's guest needs no introduction, so let's meet her now. Who is Karen Farley SC? Ah, well, I'm a lawyer, um, obviously. Um, I work for Legal Aid WA and have done for many years. Um, I'm currently employed as an appeals consultant, um, but my practice is fairly broad ranging. So I do some superior court indictable work. Um, I also do a lot of work in the mentally impaired accused review board. And I do, um, I respond to dangerous sex offender applications from time to time. And um, I'm generally there as a go-to person for curly questions. Um, from a sounding board of sorts? Yes, I think so. Not only for the lawyers at Legal Aid, but also for the profession. I mean, that's one of the roles of being senior counsel anyway. Yep. Um, but that also takes up quite a lot of time. Um, in my spare time, um, I'm a local government chair councillor and I chair the Racing Penalties Appeals Tribunal. Um, and in my other spare time... Um, I have three children who are adult, but um, they're probably my greatest achievements, particularly as none of them have ended up as lawyers. Well done. <laughs> that, that's, that's quite an achievement. <laughs> particularly as their father and I are both lawyers. That's, that's extra special. <laughs> it's probably made them run a mile, I think, <laughs> very sensibly. <laughs> so today's topic is when shit hits the fan is, is, is the name of it, but really... What do you do when things go wrong? What have you done when things go wrong? And who do you turn to when things go wrong? So All right. ha- has there been a moment where you can pinpoint, say, your heart completely sank because of what you did or what you didn't do um, and how you'd messed up? Okay, the one, that, the one that springs to mind was many, many years ago when I was working in the children's court solely. So I was in the youth law unit at Legal Aid and I was representing... Um, a young girl who was charged with attempted murder. Um, and it was, a, it was a sad story. It was her and her boyfriend had a sort of Thelma and Louise moment and, and wanted to go and drive off a cliff, not that there are many cliffs around the metropolitan area. And they had this altercation with a, a taxi driver, in fact, and, and he got hurt. Um, there was a piece of evidence that was a, I was aware of, um, and at the last minute the prosecutors changed and I knew that this piece of evidence, which was actually a handwritten note, was relevant and was in the possession of the prosecutor. But the prosecutor didn't discover it. Um, And I went into a mental decline at the close of the prosecution case because I thought this was important evidence for them and it hadn't been put. Um, Was it my responsibility to tell the prosecutor and I thought no I won't do anything so the day ended and I went home I literally did not sleep um, worrying about what my responsibility was and Staring at the ceiling sort of stuff. I, I lasted till about 6am the next morning and I rang um, Brian Singleton um, who is a I mean, a lot of your listeners will remember Brian Singleton. He was a very great mentor of mine and I relied on him implicitly. And I thought I'd wake him up, but luckily I didn't. I was going to say, was this a a 6am phone call? This was a a 6am phone call. And I just blurted this out to him and said, what do I do? I've been up all night. 
And I'll never forget his immediate response, which was, Farley, keep your fat mouth shut. (laughs) (laughs) And the load that that took off my mind was immediate and immeasurable, and it was fantastic. Um, That's not to say that things didn't go pear-shaped because overnight the prosecutor located said piece of evidence and applied to reopen the case. But it being before a judge alone, the the jury had retired in the sense that the case had finished and the judge would not let them reopen. I don't think that prosecutor's spoken civilly to me since. I I could imagine that's one (laughs) severed relationship, that is. But So you spoke there about how you resolved it, but in in the time it took from the time you thought you were going to go to sleep to the 6am phone call, um, not what went through your mind, but how did you resolve it internally to say that what you needed to do was call someone? Was that merely a a good standing relationship beforehand or was that... uh, someone had told you that's what you do? Um, I think it was something I worked out really quickly and really early on. Yep. And um, I, I still use that. If I have any doubt whatsoever, or if I'm feeling uneasy, I will run it past someone else. And that I think is a really important skill to learn. And, and, and the message, I guess, is if a question is worth asking, it's necessarily not a stupid question. Even though the answer may be easy for someone else to work out, it necessarily needs to be asked and it's not stupid. So that's a big lesson to learn for people. And how how did you learn that lesson? Was it through merely having these sort of, I imagine not on that sort of level, but these moments of no idea what to do and having a culture around you that promoted asking questions or was it something that came from within or was it... um I think it was a cultural thing. I did my um, articles at Lavin and Walsh, which is now Lavin's, um, and it was a very small sort of family-based firm, not as as in family law, but as in did any area of law that came in through the door. And there was a real culture there of asking of sitting in and learning and that sort of stuff so I picked that up really easily what I did find difficult though was admitting that I didn't know the answer and I think a lot of young practitioners have that problem so I can now go down to the court of appeal and they'll put a question to me and I'll say I wouldn't have a clue your honor and I'm perfectly comfortable doing that what my experience has given me however is the ability to think through an answer as I'm talking yes that just comes with time but I think I found it very difficult when I used to go to master's chambers for instance and the master would ask me a question um, and I couldn't understand him and I, and I wouldn't say I don't understand I'd say some something foolish you know and then wonder why I got into trouble yes. um, so I think that is something I learned really quickly and it was a really necessary lesson to always admit when you don't know but assure whoever it is that you'll go and find the answer. Because I think that's that's part of it from a junior's perspective in terms of sometimes it's not asking the question when the question's right in front of you to ask and other times it's the internal feeling of reflection that you have to have already known the answer. So by asking it you're effectively admitting uh, being lesser than others around you. That's right. And it sounds like it just came through a cultural learning for you, but for the juniors who, who may listen, what, 
What sort of advice do you have for them if they're not in such a fortunate position to be in that sort of culture? Yeah, look, they've got to find someone who they can go and ask. Um, And you may not feel comfortable doing that with your principal or you may not feel comfortable doing that with any of the members of the firm that you're in. Um, But you need... You need to have a network of, of people. I hate that word, but you need to have a group of people that you can talk to, and you have to work out who to go to for the right question. Yes. So, for instance, I'll give you an example of what happened today. Um, a young lawyer from the regional offices rang and asked me a procedural question in the magistrates' court. Now, I'm, I'm not often in the magistrates' court. And I thought I knew the answer, and I, from my perspective, I knew the answer, but yes. I just had a nagging feeling that the procedure may have changed since I was last regularly there. I don't normally see in senior counsel down in magistrates' court, so uh, that, No, that's no, it tends, it tends to put magistrates' court into a bit of a flap when senior <laughs> counsel goes down there, but anyway, I don't know why. Um, so I went and took some advice this morning quite frankly, from a duty lawyer. I mean, a, a junior right duty person. lawyer, because that is the go-to person for that sort of question. Yep. And she confirmed that I wasn't so much of a dinosaur that everything had changed <laughs> and it was still the same answer. But I wasn't 100% comfortable giving that response just because it's the great senior counsel's response. Yep. Check it with a person who would know. And I think that's the main answer is to get yourself a group of various people I would go to different people for different things Um, and in fact I was doing a a seminar last night with um, Judge Baroni and when um, she was at the bar she would be my go-to person for sticky senior counsel ethical issues and I would be hers so it doesn't matter at what stage at your career you're at you do need to run things past other people. And, and that was one area I did want to get to, which is what does your support network look like now? So Judge Baroni is now at the bench. Yes. Uh, so <laughs> yeah, I've, I, I've lost Judge Baroni, unfortunately. <laughs> um, so others, I would go to other senior counsel for um, ethical questions, um, not necessarily criminal senior counsel because it might be just a general ethical question. That is if I didn't know the answer myself or yes. I was concerned that there were two or three answers. Um, but look, anyone, you know, I'd, as I said, if the duty lawyer is the one to ask, you go to the duty lawyer. Who do you ask about a bail application? I certainly, certainly wouldn't be asking senior counsel. No. Um, <laughs> wouldn't be asking a commercial lawyer in Subiaco either. So. You wouldn't, no. <laughs> but there again, you might be asking them in relation to other matters. You just need to have... And so the bigger the group that you've got going, the better. So how have you... Let's talk about that then. How have you built a group around you um, that you can rely upon and how do you determine someone who might just be someone you meet in the profession as opposed to someone who you can rely upon for that advice if you need it? Um. Well, I suppose just becoming involved in things is really important. So Piddington, Law Society, um, as I'm senior counsel, I'm on the Legal Practice Board. So any sort of group of like-minded people, you will figure out who are the approachable people and whether they would be okay with you approaching them on certain matters. and I, and I think the way to do it is to say, look, do you mind if I ask you something about X? Yes. 
in fact, example again, I had a call the other day from someone about family court costs. And they, they just launched into this question about family court costs and I had to say, stop. Can I stop you right there? What I know about family law can be written on the back of a postage stamp. Um, it's at 1 Victoria Avenue. Yes. <laughs> and it's in the same building as the federal court. Well, in fact, it used to be at 55 St George's Terrace. There we go. No, it was in the Reserve Bank building, wherever that was. <laughs> and when it moved, I refused to find out where it had moved to. <laughs> that was many, many years ago. But what I can do for people in that circumstance is I said, look, I don't, I can't advise you on this, but yep. how about you go to so-and-so yep. who's a family law person, senior counsel. Senior, well, counsel. not necessarily even yep. senior counsel, but a senior practitioner. Yep. Why don't you go and ask them and say that I've sent you, say yes. that I dobbed them in. So so that's, that's one area I do want to move to, which is how do you help juniors who may call who you may have no relationship with you may not be the right person as you say for for that call but as as a senior counsel but also just as a person in the profession who's looking after other people how do you assist them when you can't give them the direct answer well i can usually direct them to someone who might be able to yep they may not but they might um alternatively i'd put them on to uh, the Law Society actually has on its website a list of senior people that you can call. And I, I don't think... A, well, I think a lot of junior practitioners know that it's there, um, but not everybody. And uh, that's a really good go-to thing. Um, you can approach any senior counsel. Part of senior counsel's role is to give advice. Um, some of my brothers and sisters are perhaps less approachable than others, but... <laughs> Um, you will generally find that they will they will assist because that's what they should do. Yeah. So so that's that's one thing which is knowing that the list is there, and also that that list isn't just there on paper and, and there for show. It is actually there to be used. Well, we put our hands up to go on the list, so yes. it's a voluntary thing. I mean, there are no one dobbed you in to no. have to provide the advice later that's down right. the track. Yeah. yeah. So what what do you wish in that tone, junior practitioners knew? more about either where to go to get advice when they need it, um, the support networks they can look out for. Yeah, I, I think the main thing to know is that you will need advice. Yep. Everyone will need advice. Um, some of us need advice constantly. Um, and it's it's very dangerous to practice in a vacuum, Yes. in a professional yep. vacuum. Um, I also have a tendency to run my arguments past other people. And I've got quite good over the years of running arguments past myself. And when I run my own argument past myself, if, I'm, if I end up rolling around on the floor laughing at myself, then perhaps I need to rethink the argument. Back to the computer. If, if I react angrily to myself, again, I need to either rephrase or recalibrate the whole argument. Yeah. Um, but having a sort of straw poll or having your, your own little sort of fake jury, as it were, to, to run your arguments past... Um, is a good idea. And in terms of finding those people, you've found them, I imagine, through just being approachable yourself, uh, being highly competent yourself. Uh, for those who are in the smaller firms who may not have it right there, you've talked about they should join things like Piddington. They, they can call uh, senior counsel who are on the list that's easily identifiable and searchable. Yeah. Um, is there anything day-to-day -day that you think they could use 
that they may otherwise not know about. Um, and I, what comes to my mind is when you're down at court and you may not know where matters are in the list, as, as a very simple example, um, most other practitioners know where they are in the list and are very happy to tell you. But I feel uh, a lot of people who will sit at the back of the courtroom waiting for their go, so to speak, will sit there completely stressed out and not wanting to talk to anyone because if they do, they might say the wrong thing at the wrong time. Have you had any of those sort of experiences or is there anything that you can provide to help those sort of people? Um, I think they need to get over that really quickly and to ask questions um, and also to to go out and find who the right people are to ask. And a number of and using that sort of instance, if you don't know where you are on the list and what's happening and everything else, it's a really good idea to have a good relationship with the JSO, yes. the Judicial Support Officer, um, and the judicial usher, for instance, and to not even think about being abrupt or rude with those sorts of people because they can be of great assistance to you. Um, so I guess if people are frightened about asking, it may be because they've asked in an unfortunate way in the past and not received any positive response. Yes. Yep. So they give up. Just try doing it a different way. And remember that if you're asking someone to do you a favour, it's not a good idea to antagonise them. <laughs> yes, before doing it. I mean, look, and I, I see I see a lot of people doing that in in courts too. I mean, you see the practitioner who attacks a witness in cross examination. Why? You want them to agree with you. If you start accusing them of all sorts of things and speaking to them abruptly and all that sort of thing, they will go out of their way to disagree with you. Um, even if they don't believe it. Even if they don't believe it. They might so, just get caught up in the moment. I mean, it, it, it never ceases to amaze me where I think often people watch too much TV where that sort of thing happens all the time maybe. But thinking about how to get yourself in the best position to do the best for your client is a really good way of approaching practice in a holistic sense. Yeah. How can I? And it, that goes across all levels. So interviewing a client, for instance, how do you go about that to get the best instructions you can possibly get? Well, you don't talk to them like you would have taught to your taught lecturer at university. Yep. You've, you've got to pitch your communication at a level that the person's most likely to understand for starters and be able to respond to without thinking that they are that they should be trying harder or that they're dumb or something yes, I mean, yeah patronizing them down to a level that they're not at that's right so you've really got to think about that and that's something that none of us are taught in law school yes no. you're never taught how to interview or how to communicate and all we do as lawyers is communicate. I mean, years ago I taught at the Articles Training Program and we would take um, graduates through a plea in mitigation um, and make them do it. And you'd get these guys from the big law firms who were never going to have anything to do with a criminal except potentially as a victim. Um, and they would kick up about having to 
do this plea and mitigation? And we would say to them, what skill are you learning by presenting a plea and mitigation? What are you trying to do? And some bright spark would say, oh, you're trying to get the lowest sentence. And yes, and what does that mean? You're trying to persuade someone. Now, you think of a corporate client who's come to you for advice on a joint venture or a merger or an acquisition or whatever. What are you trying to do on their behalf? You're trying to persuade other people. This is a skill that is across the board. Universal to what we do. And a plea and mitigation is just a damn easy thing to do (laughs) as an example of it because it's so specific. Yeah. So one one place I want to move into, which is something you just touched upon there in terms of the courtroom and courtroom etiquette and how much you give or take in that environment is um, in the setting of uh, trials or even pre-trial stages. How much leniency, leeway or how collegial you are with the counsel on the other side. Uh, Is it your practice to take every point that you possibly can and deny them uh, the adjournment of two weeks that they need um, and that they come to reasonably? And I I can see you're shaking your head and and I knew the answer would be no, but why is that? Where do you draw the line between, no, I think I'm now going to be actually assisting them uh, to the detriment of my client and no, I am just assisting the administration of justice and I can get my client to agree. Well, you see, you've got to, you've got to realise that your ultimate duty is to the court yep. in any event. Um, and sure, you take a point that's not in your client's best interests. But if a point is neither in your client's best interests or against it, and it will assist your colleague, who is your opposing counsel, um, then you have to ask yourself, why would I be difficult about this? Is there a reason to be for me to be difficult about this. Um, and that's the approach I would always take. I think it really helps to know who your opponent is. Um, and I do feel sorry in these days for everyone who's been to all different universities and been mostly online. Yes. Because when I came through law school, there was one law school. We were all down at the law library at UWA because there was things, things called books <laughs> that you had to read. Um, And you knew everybody. So when you came out and started practising, you knew who, (coughs) pardon me, the difficult bastards were, um, and you knew who you could be reasonable with, and you you adjust your dealings appropriately. I think that's... And again, that involves getting out there and meeting people and working out how they tick. Or asking other people, has has you ever dealt with... Joe Blow. Yep. What's he like? Will he give Get me some advice? feedback. Yep. Because I, I, I think on the junior stage, that's a lot of it, especially in sort of the work of the commercial world, which is it's just procedural, most of the things that you're trying to hit. It's deadline dates of we'll get my statement of claim in by date. Well, does anything change if that date is a week further back, if, if it's absolutely required? And it's just being able to have the freedom to pick up the phone and know the person on the other side is going to be receptive to the phone call. And as long as you've got a decent enough argument as to why that's happened. Yep. Uh, I think that's right. And, and also think about it from the judicial officer's perspective. Yes. If there's a reasonable consent notice that can be filed and it saves the court's time, why wouldn't you do that? Because what you need to establish really early on, which is really difficult to do and it's really easy to lose 
is a reputation with the bench. Um, If the bench trusts you and the bench will take on board what you say, it just makes your practice so much easier. So, for instance, in the criminal area, remorse is a very rare thing, genuine remorse. You get it in about 5% of cases. And you often see people trotting down and saying, oh, you know, he's really sorry for what he's done. And he's, the guy's sitting in the dock chewing gum and looking at the ceiling. You know, Exhibit A means there's no remorse. If you get that, res- that reputation of being someone who trots out remorse all the time, when it's that 5% that really matters and it's a really powerful mitigation, they're not going to believe you. If I say the word remorse in any court, the judges often put their pens down. <laughs> Because it is so unusual and you can see the reaction. So that's part of it. So um, turning then, what sort of issues do people come to you with, junior members of the profession? Can you give us a flavour of what what the style of thing that a senior counsel would be more than happy to... Yeah, a lot of it's ethical questions. Um, A lot of it... um, is conflict-based, you know, what do I do now? Can I continue to act? Um, that sort of that sort of stuff. At the, at the moment, there's a lot of um, concern about clients in the criminal area who are unfit to plead or uh, have insanity defences under Section 27. Um, the Criminal Law Mentally Impaired Accused Act um, which we refer to as chlamydia, which sounds a bit like a sexually transmitted disease That's more than very, anything else. Very close relative of it. <laughs> um, has huge ramifications, and there's a lot of misunderstanding in the area, even with um, judicial officers, experienced judicial officers, uh, and experienced counsel. So I've got a big practice in that area, and I get a lot of questions about that and those questions are a bit concerning because there is a lot of misunderstanding um but generally i don't know it's pretty much across the board i'd have to say i do get a lot of questions from junior practitioners who would like to change their instructions and i <laughs> just not not convenient for them to it's, have the they're facts just that they have. not the right instructions <laughs> and i have to say to them look um Unfortunately, it would be lovely if your client told you X, but they've told you Y and you're stuck with it. Um, so, and I think, again, that is a, that is a practice thing that you're not taught yes. at uni. You're, you're not taught that things aren't going to go the way that you want them to go. <laughs> And people being people are not going to say what you expect them to say. And in fact, having worked in the children's court area, um, kids can tell you one thing one day and another thing another day and another thing the day after that. And if that conflicted a practitioner, they'd be on a revolt. Well, I say they're on a revolving door, but they'd be on a revolving door of practitioners. Yep. The fact of the matter is people are going to tell you things that you really don't want to know so then turning to how you actually how do you actually help practitioners that come to you is it the case that it's a i would imagine most of it's by the phone but do you have moments where uh, the issue for one reason or another you'll say no that's meat for coffee about this yeah um and 
different ways of meeting different people for the different needs that they come to you with. And Correct. can you talk through that yeah. a bit about how that works? Yeah. Well, it would depend on whether it's a quick question, yep. um, email or phone call or whatever, or whether there's a larger issue or whether either the practitioner or I think there is a larger <laughs> issue, then I'll probably suggest a coffee or something along those lines. Um, yeah. uh, and obviously redirect them if it's necessary to someone else that might be able to help them. Yeah. And, and I guess the point to come out of that is that uh, merely because the senior council has told you that they want to have a coffee with you about the matter that you've raised... Doesn't, doesn't mean, mean that there's a bigger issue. No, no, absolutely not. Yeah. Um, and senior council's not going to say, let's get a coffee. Senior council's going to say, do you want me to think about this and call you back or would you like to meet me for a coffee? Yeah. Senior council's not going to tell you what Which to one? do on yep. what terms because, well, hopefully they're not, because they're there to help you, not. Yeah. So this is the question we end with. Um, so thank you for your time. But what does justice mean to you? <laughs> um, that's a very good question. I see justice as a very much a broader issue than just to do with law. I see justice as doing the right thing and having the right things happen. Um, As such, I think it's a bit aspirational um, because it doesn't always happen. Um, But if, if that's the mindset that you enter the legal profession in and if you're capable of keeping that mindset of doing the right thing by everyone that you come into contact with, then um, I think you've done your bit for justice. Amazing. There we go. Thank you for your time. No worries. <laughs>